Heavenly Father, your word tells us that you have a faithfulness that continues through all generations. So Lord, we come before you this morning and ask that you would continue to show your faithfulness through all generations by showing your faithfulness to us this morning and sending the Spirit to help us as we study your word together. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we begin a series in the book of Jude. And as we come to any book, it's good to know who wrote it. And the wonderful thing about it is the epistles in the New Testament, they often give us who wrote them. And verse 1 tells us who wrote the book of Jude, and it is Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, who is this person who is a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James? Well, it's clearly understood, as you can study the New Testament, who Jude is, that he is the brother of James, who was a son of Mary and Joseph, and so therefore the half-brother of Jesus. So Jude is also, if he's a brother of James, he is a half-brother of Jesus. He is mentioned by name in Mark's Gospel. Uh, but it's interesting here that he does not say that he is the uh, brother of Jesus, that he's humble enough to say that he is the brother of James, not the brother of James and John, uh, but the brother of James, who is the son of Joseph and Mary. But who are Jude's readers? As we come to a book as well, we need to ask who wrote it, but who, who were his readers? And they are given to us in the epistle as well in verse 1. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Who are Jude's readers? Well, they're ones who are called. What does it mean to be called, though? Well, in the New Testament, we understand that there's two types of calling. There's two types of calling. There's firstly a general call that God makes. God calls in generally to all people that they would repent and be saved from sin that they would come to him he calls to them and says come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and i will give you rest come to me and be saved but there's also another call that god makes and this is what we know as the effectual call effective calling effectual call what is this well it's when god calls believers only and they effectually, they effectively, or effectually, come to him and are saved. So there's this general call that goes out to everybody, come to me. But there's also this effectual call that goes out to God's people. And how is that different? What happens with those people? Well, of course, the Holy Spirit comes and changes their heart and gives them a renewed will so that they do repent. They hear the call to repent and believe, and they actually do repent and believe and receive salvation. And this is the calling that I believe is being spoken of here, this calling that is effective. Romans 8.30 talks about this call. It says, In those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the calling that Jude's readers have, that they have been not only predestined, not only called, they've been justified and they have been glorified. Now, how do we know that this is who Jude is writing to, that it is Christians? How do we know that this is the effectual call that has happened to his readers? Well, what characterises those who are called that Jude speaks about? What are the characteristics of those who are called? Well, we read in verse 1, "...to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father." 
What does it mean to be called by God? To be effectually called? It means to be loved by God the Father. How does love characterize believers? Well, God the Father has loved them and created them. If they weren't loved by God, he would never have created them in the first place. But not only have they been created by God, they've also been saved by God. Without the love of God the Father, the Son would not have come, and the people that belong to God would not have been saved. The Father would not have sent the Son to save his people if it was not for his love. So we see that those who are called are people who are loved by God the Father. And also, what else do we see? We see that they're kept by Jesus Christ. In verse 1, it says, To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. Now, this is actually a, a tricky translation, to, um, a tricky phrase to translate. And if you have your pew Bibles before you or another translation, it may actually have a footnote, as it does in the pew Bibles. There's a little letter A, and you can drop to the margin and see an alternate translation is for or in. So basically, the, it's a bit ambiguous in the Greek, but basically you can say they're kept by Jesus Christ or for Jesus Christ or in Jesus Christ. And so then the focus may be that it's the Father who keeps them in Christ Jesus or for Christ Jesus, or maybe the focus is on Jesus here in doing the keeping. Or it could actually be both. It is possible that there's a deliberate ambiguity given by Jude in the text and that he actually means both. And we understand, of course, that the Bible does speak about the Father keeping his people and also the Lord Jesus keeping his people. Even that passage that we had read for us before from Isaiah chapter 43, where we hear of God in the Old Testament, and what does he say to his people? In verse 1 of chapter 43, it says, But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you, I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Very clear teaching from the Old Testament that God will protect his people. They go through water, they go through fire, he will look after them, the ones that he has called. But we also understand that Jesus promises to look after his people as well. Classic passage in John chapter 10 speaks so clearly of this, where Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. They follow me as I call to them. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. That's a keeping. That's Jesus keeping them. But it's interesting that he also puts the Father in in his teaching there as well. In John chapter 10, continues, the next words are from Jesus' lips, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So clearly John is, uh, Jesus is teaching in John's gospel that his people, his sheep, are kept by the Father, but they're also kept by the Son. And so it could be that it's both here, that there's this idea of God keeping his sheep by the Son, but actively himself as well, and for Jesus Christ as well, which is the translation that is preferred by the uh, Pew Bibles there this morning, that it's, they're kept by Jesus Christ, and then in the margin, for Jesus. There's this idea of saving God's people, keeping them in his hand for Jesus, for his glory in heaven that is to come. 
Now, why do we need protection? Why would Jude's readers need protection? Why would they need this keeping, this idea of watching over them, this clinging to them in his hand? Well, it's because there's many enemies for God's people. There are many enemies. And that's what the book of Jude is actually about. If you read it this afternoon, you go through and and read it, it is very clear that it's all about false teachers, people who would come and attack the people of God, who are coming and, and being amongst the people of God, and doing them harm. And so they need to be kept safe. They need to be kept safe from the world as it infiltrates the church, but they also need to be kept safe from the the great enemy, Satan himself, and even safe from their own sinful flesh. God's people have many enemies, and they need keeping. They need someone to be watching over them. They need to be in God's hand and in Christ's hand. So we can see that those who are called are effectually called ones. They're not the general call that's gone out, and they've heard that. No, these people are believers. They're loved by God, which we understand that's what happens for believers. They're loved by God, and they are also kept by God. He protects his own, and he looks after them. But we also understand from this passage that these people are believers because of what comes to them in abundance. The things that are described in verse 2 are clearly spoken of as things that generally we associate with God's people. What do we see in verse 2 that characterises Jude's readers? Well, mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. These are things that Christians are regularly known to receive, that it is God's people who experience mercy, peace and love. And why is it mercy? Why do they receive mercy? Well, they continue to sin against the Lord. They need forgiveness. And so they need to have forgiveness in abundance by God's mercy poured out upon them. And why peace? Well, we understand that God's people need peace. They've got many enemies that are coming at them. And even peace with God is something that they cherish. And so they need peace in abundance to be given to them. And of course, love. It's not as though we have God's love to begin our walk with him. We also understand that God continues to pour out his love upon his people again and again, that there's this abundance of love that comes to his people. And it all comes, of course, by the blood of Christ Jesus. How do we experience mercy, peace and love? Well, it's all by the power of Christ given to us through his blood. It is as Christ has died for his people that mercy, peace and love are poured out upon them. This is what we'll sing at the end of the service, that there's power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. This is how this happens, is that we have mercy, peace and love, all because of Jesus Christ and his death for his people. So what's a good illustration to understand the readers of Jude? And us today, if we are also ones who are effectually called. If we are called, we are kept... We have mercy, peace, and love in abundance. What's a good illustration for us to understand, to illustrate what it means to be one of God's people? Well, I think the best, one of the best ways that we can understand the relationship that we have with God is the one of a bride and groom, the one of bride and groom. Jesus and the church are said to be a marriage made in heaven, that there was a marriage literally made in heaven, that there's this idea of Christ being the groom, and the church being his bride, which is taught in Scripture. And even our earthly marriages are meant to be shadows of the great marriage between Christ and the groom. 
How can we see this as an illustration of what we've even been looking at this morning? Well, what has the sun done? The sun has called us while we were in the gutter with our sin and our misery and asked us to marry him. That's what the Son of God has done for his people. He's come and asked them to marry him. Now, many people refuse the Lord's proposal, marry me. They hear this call that goes out to all men, which we call the general call of God. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me and be married to me. Many refuse, but God's people actually say yes, and they accept Christ's marriage proposal to them. And why did the son propose marriage in the first place? Well, it's because of what we saw in the text, that they are loved by God the Father, that God the Father has loved the bride of Christ, they cre he created them for his son, and even when they rebelled against him, even though they've been sinful and rejected him, that he has continued to love them, as we see in this verse. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father. He created them for his son, but then when they went their own way, he continued to love them. And what did he do as a result? Well, he accepted the dowry that the Lord Jesus made so that they could be his, uh, so they could be his bride. And what is that? What payment has Christ made? Well, it's his life, his body and blood given at the cross so that their sins could be forgiven and so that they could be married to him. So they could be married to him. And the Father has accepted that. And in his love, he has welcomed the bride into his home as the bride of his son. And so what is Christ doing now? What does the text tell us that Christ is doing now and even God himself is doing now if we take it in both ways? Well, Christ is keeping us, protecting us until that wedding day, until that final consummation of the marriage is made when he returns and takes his people to be with him. So at the moment, what is he doing? He is the groom and he's protecting his bride. He's guarding her. From who? From those who would try to pull him away and pull her away from him which is what is being warned about in the rest of the book, and Lord willing, we will see as we work through this book together. We will see the attacks that other suitors come to the bride with to try and attract her away from the groom, the true groom, Jesus himself. There are many suitors who want to ravish the bride and leave her without a groom for all of eternity. But thankfully, the son keeps his grip on the bride's hand, and the father keeps his grip on the bride's hand, so that she is led surely day by day towards that wedding day when her relationship with Christ Jesus will be clearly declared and consummated. But are we dragged into the marriage? Sounds like a horrible thing that this bride is just dragged into this marriage by the, the father who comes up with the idea, you're going to marry my son, and then the son takes the other hand and grips, her, grips it too. But the answer is no. We're not dragged into the marriage. It's not against our will. The rest of the world looks at it and says, 
Why would you want to be with him when he forces you what to do, tells you what to do all the time? They hate the idea of being married to him. As they hear the marriage proposal go out, they're like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. But the Christian, if he is effectually called, the spirit changes his heart, changes his mind, and he loves the Lord Jesus. His will desires to be with Jesus. No one becomes a Christian kicking and screaming against the effectual will of God. No, no, no. They desire it. Why? Because their minds are open to the beauty of God and the beauty of Christ and particularly the beauty of his death for them. They realize that the only reason they can be part of his bride and have him as their groom and be under his protection now and always is because he gave his body and blood. This is a groom worth having who will die for his bride. And so this is what is described here in Jude. People who are loved by God, who are called by God. Marriage proposal goes out. They're called, they're loved, they're kept. And then what happens to them now? Well, they bask in verse 2. Mercy, peace and love in abundance. This is what the people of God experience now. Why mercy? Sadly, we are unfaithful fiancés. And we cast lingering looks at other suitors. And that's what the book of Jude's all about, is to help us to understand that the other suitors are not worthy of our time. But wonderfully, God continues to show mercy to us. And he continues to give us peace. Even though we've been unfaithful to him, he continues to be faithful to us and gives us peace. And knowing that his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so we know that we are in his love, as it says there in verse 2. And so this is our state now, as ones who are knowing God's mercy, his peace and his love day by day, and looking forward to that day. What day? When we will know his peace and love in heaven itself, as the wedding supper is brought out, and we understand more fully than we do now what it means to be the bride of Christ. So what are called ones? What are these original readers of the letter? What are those who are called ones today? Well, they're Christians, and they're people who've been called from the gutter to the palace, to the king's palace, as his bride. Now, is this a true understanding here in the book of Jude of what it means to be a Christian, that we can use Christ and the church as a groom and a bride to understand this? Well, yes, the Bible is very clear on this passage like Ephesians 5, which is a popular passage to preach on at weddings, which teaches very clearly that earthly marriages are meant to be little shadows of the true marriage, which is Christ and the church. But another passage that's very helpful on this is Ezekiel chapter 16. And I want to read from that for you this morning. So you can see this picture given out so clearly. Ezekiel chapter 16 page 831. I encourage you to look it up if you've got a Bible before you, because we're actually going to read quite a few verses from it. It's actually a very long chapter in the Bible, so I won't read all of it. But you may like to read the rest of it this afternoon on your own. But we'll read from verse 1, where we see God showing us what it means to be effectually called, what it means to be a child of himself. Ezekiel chapter 16, reading from verse 1, page 831, where it says, The word of the Lord came to me. 
Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field. From the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, you who were naked and bare. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewellery. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty. Because the splendour I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. See what God is doing, describing his people. You were once pagans, kicking about in your sinfulness, but I looked at you and loved you and said, live and looked after you. But then what happened? Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favours on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewellery I gave you, the jewellery made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the fine flour, olive oil and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. See how God treats his people. He understands what they're doing when they worship other gods. He considers it prostitution. He considers it sexual immorality. It is so serious. And yet this is what the people of God did. He looked at them. He loved them. He cared for them. And then in their arrogance, they followed other suitors instead of worshipping the God that that had cared for them and looked after them. And so we'll jump to verse 43 and we'll see God's response. Verse 43 of Ezekiel chapter 16. Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but enraged me with all these things, I will surely bring down on your head what you have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Did you not add lewdness to all your other detestable practices? And he goes on to speak about their practices and what will happen. And then in verse 59, we'll jump to verse 59. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth 
and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. Here we see... God's understanding of what his people are. They are his bride, whom he loved and cared for, and then were wayward, but he continues to love them and even make atonement for them. They don't make the atonement. He makes the atonement for them. He makes them right with him. And how did he do this? Well, of course, it's by the Lord Jesus Christ in his death. And this is what God has been doing with his people. Why did God create his people at all? To be a bride for his son. That's why God created his people to begin with. Why did he redeem them? It's so that they can be a bride for his son. And so he's warning us in the book of Jude about the dangers that the Old Testament portrays so clearly here in Ezekiel 16 that the the people of Israel fell into. That we have to understand that we are loved by God We're kept by him in his covenant that he has made. He remembers that. But we need to be careful about other suitors and what we may do. But God will continue to keep his own. Even when we've been wayward, he continues to remember his covenant, his covenant promise, which is what marriage is. It's a marriage promise that he has made with his people. And so as we look at the book of Jude together, And as we've looked at it this morning, I want to come before you this morning and speak to those who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ firstly, who are not trusting in Christ Jesus. The general call to be married to Christ goes out to you now. Christ is making a marriage proposal to you this morning. Repent, believe, come to me and be married to me. Won't you say yes? And accept his marriage proposal. Won't you turn from your sins, turn from all other suitors who will never look after you as the Lord Jesus will look after you. Turn from them and trust in Christ's body and blood as the dowry that is required in order for you to be married, for you to be forgiven of your sins and to have that marriage proposal lead to you being married to him one day When he returns, turn from your sins and trust in him. And if you are a believer and a part of the bride of Christ this morning, what should you do? Well, you should rejoice and give thanks to God. Give thanks to God the Father, give thanks to God the Son, and give thanks to God the Holy Spirit. Why? Because once upon a time, you and me, We were kicking about in our blood and no one cared for us. No one cared for us. But then God effectually called. God effectually called us in love and said, live. That's what he's done for his people. And so we should rejoice in this, what he has done in calling to us and saying, live. And then what else did he do that we should be thankful for and rejoice in? He didn't just say live, he said 
Be my son's bride. Be my son's bride. And now we are kept by him, the father, and kept by the son from those who would harm us. Even as we experience harm in this world, even as we experience waywardness, we continue to be pulled back by God the Father and God the Son as he keeps us for him, for the Son, one day. So let us rejoice and thank God for creating us and saying live, but also for saying, will you marry me? And then giving us the word to say yes to the marriage proposal. And then we can also give him thanks and praise and rejoice in the mercy and the peace and the love that he abundantly pours out upon his people day by day and which we experience it. What are we as Christians? We are Cinderella. We used to live amongst the cinders. But now we have an engagement with the Son of God himself. He is sending the coach. Well, no, he is coming with the coach to retrieve us one day, to go and be with him for all of eternity. And this should cause our hearts to rejoice and to give him glory for great things he has done for us. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your love and your power by which you effectually called many of us to belong to your son as his bride. Oh Lord, we confess that we do not deserve to be married to Christ because of our sin. But we thank you that you loved us and you now keep us for him in abundant mercy, peace and love each day. So Lord, we ask that you would help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to rejoice and to thank you for what you have done for us in creating us, but also redeeming us and taking us to belong to yourself. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who's never repented of their sins, may they accept Christ's marriage proposal now as he makes it to them. And so may they say yes to him and be united to Christ this morning and begin to experience your mercy, your peace and your love. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.